as I was saying, I tuned into a morning news magazine just as a 10-year-old boy was being interviewed. Turned out he was entering the freshman class of Harvard. And he was quite impressive. His use of language and presentation of ideas was everything you might imagine a miniature Einstein would be. He had a small body, but a ferocious intelligence. He said he had decided to work on three PhDs simultaneously, including disciplines in both the sciences and humanities. When asked how his classmates had received him, the young genius said that he had been well-treated. But, you know, that got me thinking, really. I wondered how his classmates really felt and what they said behind his back. After all, most of his peers would be around 18 years old. Through no fault of his own, this young man has a brain function that outperforms all others, at least in certain respects. That probably means he got the best grades with the least amount of effort throughout all of his years. No doubt a high percentage of his 18-year-old classmates thought each of them each of them as the smartest person they knew and a big chunk of those worked like dogs to get into Harvard maybe it's all goodwill all for one and one for all in his class but knowing human nature knowing teenagers well for that matter knowing 50 and 60 year olds I doubt it he'll be given some latitude because of his age and naivete, but human taste for competition being what it is. I'm thinking more than one freshman wonders why this kid got the biggest brain and the fastest track. I'm thinking also that some of you remember the kid who didn't do a lick of work and aced the final while you slogged through all the bogus busy work and scraped by with a B minus. Didn't seem fair then, and come to think of it, still doesn't seem fair today. But even the smartest among us comes to discover somewhere along the way that fairness isn't part of the grand unifying theory of reality. Still, we all devise our systems of relative fairness, don't we? To which everyone and everything should conform. And when things don't conform to these variously derived rules, we get all bent out of shape. That was Jonah's problem in a nutshell. I don't know if you remember the whole book of... What do you remember about Jonah? I know you know one thing. <laughs> right? You know one thing about Jonah. And by the way, that's not the most important thing to know. Jonah had been assigned to go to Nineveh to warn the Ninevites 
that unless they repented, they would be destroyed. And from the beginning of the book, Jonah did not want to do that. That's why he got into a boat in the first place to run from this obligation that God had placed upon him. And then the story of being thrown into the water and the fish swallowing him for three days, only to be spewed up onto the shore so that, in fact, he could do what God had assigned for him to do. So he goes to Nineveh. But he doesn't want to go because he's worried that God wasn't going to play by the standards Jonah had established. Jonah wanted God to destroy the Ninevites, not redeem them. To hell with giving them an opportunity to repent. Off with their heads was Jonah's attitude. Those are the rules of fairness that Jonah believed in. The Ninevites had brutalized the Israelites. They deserved to die, period. Saving them was grossly unfair. Now, the book of Jonah was part of the scriptures Jesus and the rest of the Jews read and studied. And it concerned a surprising lesson that in God's economy, God can do whatever God wants including saving those we don't deem worthy of it. God doesn't play by the tit-for-tat logic of Jonah's conception. This book taught a radical wisdom at the time. And then, hundreds of years later, Jesus told his own story about God's radical grace, and it went down like this, as you heard. You and John are hired to work in a vineyard for eight hours. The employer says to you, the normal rate is $200 for the day. Is that all right with you? And you and John say, yeah, that's fair. At noon, Bill is hired. How much is he paying you, you ask him? I don't know, Bill says. I need the work, and I know he'll be fair about it. At 3 o'clock, Ed is hired. And the same conversation takes place. Then later, at the end of the day, in the pay line, Bill, the one hired at noon, is first. He gets $200. Ed's next, hired at the end of the day. He gets $200. And wow, you and John (laughs) grin to each other. You're in like Flynn, you think. Think how much we'll get. What, only $200? Well, that's what you agreed on, and you said it was fair. What's the complaint? The complaint, of course, wasn't that you were cheated per se. You did get what you had agreed to. The problem was how Bill and Ed were dealt with so generously, and that stung. The sting had everything to do with comparison, with your relative status in relation to the others in the same system. It was a question of, from your point of view, fairness. Bill and Ed didn't deserve what they got. They didn't deserve the same as you. Now, to be clear, this parable isn't about labor management relations. You're not going to go to a leadership course and learn 
how to treat your employees based on this particular text, probably. But clothing is point in the garb of money, which, as you know, I like to remind you, Jesus often did. He spoke about money more than any other single subject in the scriptures, as he often did, because it lies so close to our hearts. Jesus grabs our attention to teach something about grace. And what he says without much sweetener is that God's dispensing of grace is completely unfair by the standards of our neediness, a reprise of Jonah's problem. A good chunk of our neediness is the result of our belief that there is only a limited amount of good stuff in the world. We are people who live in a mindset of scarcity, scrabbling after the little bit that we can secure for ourselves. And I would tell you that if we sort of reach down and back far enough into our psyches, what it's really about is our perception that there's a very limited amount of love in the world. We assign monetary means to that love in our culture. But we unconsciously assume that love is a very scarce resource. Most of our fairness issues derive from this arid place. So we devise elaborate rules whereby we can each compete for the limited resource. And if we play by the rules, we think, and regularly checking and comparing our bottom lines, we can end up doing better than at least some others. And then we're constantly sorting people into the worthy and the not-so-worthy. Those that deserve to get good stuff and those, quite frankly, who don't. The problem for you and John is that everyone was treated the same while you had put in a lot more sweat. And that doesn't square with the rule book. Thank you very much. Now, because of this aspect of human nature, if the owner of the vineyard were to look for laborers the next day, all of those in the know would wait until three to sign up. But as I said, this isn't a story about how to run a business. It's a story about spiritual values. It's a story that tells us something about God, who God is and how God functions. And at the very heart of all things, the rules warp. Things are not as they appear, sort of like how Einstein's formulas warp Newton's equations by mixing time and gravity into an illogical, unexpected relationship. Actually, at the very heart of all things, God has thrown out our intricately fashioned rule books. There is no more tit for tat. At the heart of all things, God has done away with keeping score. When Jesus got nailed to the cross, we might say the rule book got nailed right along with him to the cross, and it died there. Spiritually speaking, when Jesus died, the rule book died. It ended. It was finished the way we normally use it. As far as God was concerned, that was it. 
Everyone had access to the same love. Everyone had access to the same love. Everyone had access to the same love. Everyone could live their life unencumbered by bean counting. Everyone was free of it. All they had to do was act like it. This lesson lays at the very heart of the gospel. And it's extremely hard to take on. I bet you're rebelling even as I'm speaking. There's a piece of you that rebels against this. For many, this deep truth is a bitter pill to swallow, a la Jonah. Jonah knew the Ninevites deserved to die. And it's so for a lot of Christians who like to keep score. Do you know any Christians that keep score? Are you a Christian who keeps score? Some find it very hard to believe that the world isn't from start to finish, a tit-for-tat sort of place. Many would feel completely bereft without their imprisoning rule book. Honestly, speaking personally, though I have worked with this material my entire career, I would tell you that the rule book every once in a while creeps back up into my consciousness, often unbidden and often without my knowing, really. So it's so important to return and revisit these lessons so that we get stronger and better and they reside more deeply within. The rule book seems to provide some measure of control over our perception of scarcity. You see how it works? If I can line out how it's supposed to work, I might have some control over my perception of scarcity. And if we work hard enough, if we master the rules, we can wind up with more than others and thereby tell ourselves we matter. Never stop believing the opposite. Like the prisoner whose door has been flung wide, but for fear of the astonishing brightness outside fails to leave, they prefer, we prefer to stay behind bars of our own making. We might rather live isolated and alone behind bars than throw our lot in with those we feel are really undeserving of parole. Boy, that's a bitter pill. That's why Jonah says to God, I'd rather die than let the Ninevites live. Don't you dare equate me with them, God. Don't you dare. The miracle is we are really meant to live in freedom. 
Paul, at one point in his letter, says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We are meant to live in freedom. It is the freedom to love. That's the nature of the freedom, not license to love. It's a peculiar thing. God sends out the coal. All the prison doors are open. They're all open. Step out into freedom. Leave yourselves behind. And it's a marvel of the human condition that so many choose to stay right where they are. Right where they are. You know, in a moment, we'll recite a famous prayer that Jesus gave to us. It will go by quickly. You may not have ever thought about this, but I would like you to retain a conscious awareness of what I'm about to tell you. After a few phrases, we will say, give us today our daily bread. Note, we will not say, give me my daily bread. There is a whoppingly big difference between those two phrases. Give us our daily bread, not give me my daily bread. Who is the us when we say it? Well, it might be the us of our closest family relations, I suppose. It might be the us of this congregation. It might be the us of the whole Christian church. But I would ask you this. Could it possibly be the us that includes even the Ninevites? Who are the people you hate? can't stand, tolerate, want to die, be done with. Does it include them? There's no question that in God's economy, all are meant to be included. Even the repentant Ninevites. And as I would point out again, this is a radical departure from our natural inclinations. It doesn't predict an explicit systemic outcome, but it does suggest a reordering of the world's priorities to include everyone, even those who have arrived late to the party or who haven't even shown up yet, improperly dressed. Everyone has been covered. Note that we did not check your time cards when you walked through our doors this morning. And here we stand equally naked before God as we are. That sensibility permeates our life and our work. That's the sensibility we're meant to learn in here and take back out into the world. And it's 
absolutely brimming with grace and generosity and drives us to live lives committed to growing ever closer to God's design specifications. It means leaving some old business behind and some old ways of thinking behind so that we can step out of our prison cell into an astonishing freedom to love.